You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. All right, you guys doing good? Uh, have you guys uh, open up to um, uh, uh, Mark chapter chapter 6? A um, couple of, uh, of highlights, um, an inspiring one and then a, a funny one, was um, number one is, um, so... You'll hear about this in the update for next, next week. Usually to keep the lights on at City Lights, it's like we're looking for about $25,000 operationally to run ministry every single month. And so that's kind of the budget. And, and we don't think about it or talk about money a lot, you know, at church. Um, but I was totally alerted by, by my iPhone in December. There was like all this giving that was coming in. We don't do like end of the year giving. And this last December, there was $80,000 given to the church, um, which I have, I, I, um, if anything, it's just a, a level of gratitude. I, I think it makes me, like, there's people that pray for you downstairs on Wednesday that you'll never meet and never know. There's people that are next to you right now, and oftentimes, we're going to get to heaven and think that the big, loud people are the ones that are the most famous in heaven. Probably not. Probably the people that we're going to be most encouraged by and inspired by are just people that are just quietly, as Thessalonians talks about, like, living their life before Jesus and apparently being super generous among stuff. And, and so there's just a reverence, I think. I just, like, I, I consider that... Um, encouraging, obviously, because logistically there's practical things that need to happen at the church, but just spiritually, that just is like fills the wind in, in my sails for sure, uh, and super encouraging. Uh, another funny note, and this person's in the room, but I'm not going to call them out, but uh, I was speaking with uh, somebody um, at lunch, and they were asking me, is there a City Lights in Spartanburg? And funny enough, there is a City Lights in Spartanburg. They actually have a logo, and I need to like go check the copyright, make sure we're on, on good. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. They should have our logo. That's great. Uh, City Lights in Spartanburg, it's a friend of a friend, figured out who we knew, knew this person was. And I was at lunch with a person just this week, and they were like, is there a City Lights in Spartanburg? So I was yeah. And they were like, man. They were like, I need to double check. And I think they went on the phone, and they were like, yeah, I've been tithing to City Lights in Spartanburg for the last couple of, of weeks. And, I, and he's like, I'm hoping they're doing good things. And so that's what I want. It's so abundant around here, we're donating to other churches. That's like, that's the testimony. So yay, God. That's really good. Uh, but uh, good news, bad news scenario. Good news, good news scenario. Uh, that's what's um, that's what's going on. We are in a series um, called uh, the Suffering Servant. Um, Jesus has only preached one sermon. Man, wouldn't that be great if your preacher didn't just did miracles and didn't didn't have to preach sermons? And the only thing he ever talked about was seeds and soil. That's the only thing that he ever preached was the kingdom of God is like a sown seed, and sometimes the seeds catch, and sometimes there's birds and rocks and soil, and uh, some a lot of seeds they get sown, but they don't ever have fruit. But some of these seeds they they sink down. And it all kind of confuses you. It just doesn't really make sense. There's no big come as, uh, you know, just as you are um, kind of thing at the very end. Um, but it starts to make sense as you watch the actions of Jesus. That's what Mark's all about, the actions, the doing. And you realize that Jesus is like the quiet seed. You would never think the kingdom of heaven would come through somebody so meek and mild and private as that. That it's slow. It takes a long time to be in Galilee. You're only here for three years and you're going to spend most of your time in Galilee and then go to Jerusalem. Um, but it but it's going to give shade to the nations is what's going on. And, uh, and so I think we are at this spot in the book of Mark where it goes from the picture into the mirror when we start to look at discipleship. And, uh, and I think that the kingdom of heaven is coming through the suffering servant, but also the servants in this room. Also just by cups of cold water. Also by what if a miracle was actually more powerful if you didn't tell anybody about it? What if the gift that you offer towards a stranger and a neighbor, you just didn't even... Let your left hand know what your right hand was doing. What if that was the most powerful way to see the kingdom of heaven come to earth is through secret and through service? Um, I think it's the theme of Mark that we're 
jumping back into here in January. Have you ever heard of the phrase, you have to walk a mile in somebody's shoes to really understand who they are? Have you ever experienced what it's like to uh, spend enough time with somebody where you really, even apart from intellect, apart from just cognitive reasoning, you sort of feel what they're going through, maybe by way of, of empathy. Uh, for me, that's definitely um, uh, parenting. Uh, I, I found out a lot about my parents by being a parent. I ran into my good friend Dominic Worthland at Chick-fil-A, and he just looks like barely making it. You know what I mean? He's got the four girls under four. And I went up to him, and I'm like all happy, like pastor, preaching guy. Hey, how you doing? What's going on, Dom? And, and I asked him, I said, what do you want for Christmas? And he didn't even blink. He said, sleep. I just want to just close my eyes and have no little people asking me where the flashlight is. I, don't, I just want to sleep. That's all that I ask for. These are simple things. I know now why my dad is so boring because now I'm boring. And I think that Drake songs that come on in the gym, you know, are like just came out. No, that was from five years ago, dad. That song is five years ago. I don't have any more time to be cool or relevant or hip because I got too much time taking care of you. So now I am no longer cool or relevant because I sacrificed that on the altar of boringness of a dad. I now kind of understand why the grandmas and the empty nesters, they just want more time. They want more calls. They want more attention. That's what they want. And you're like, man, I want more sleep. Can we trade this off? You know, it's really what you want. Because no matter how old your kids get, you carry them in your heart. And you realize it doesn't matter how far you go. You know, like you, you empathize. You get to know somebody when you spend a, a mile in their shoes. I mean, you can look at their social media. That's one thing. Take them to coffee, another thing. But if y'all subbed each other's lives out and had their job and their kids and their problems and their stresses, you'd learn a lot more about that person if you actually had to walk, you know, a mile in their shoes. And so I love the definition um, from uh, John Mark Comer in, Port- in uh, Portland, uh, the, the Bridge- Bridgetown Church in Portland. He defines discipleship. He says, uh, discipleship is a lot more like an apprentice than a Sunday school attender. It is doing and practicing uh, what Jesus was doing and practicing. And uh, he says it's really three things. It's, it's first and foremost, it's, it's walking with Jesus. It, it's, um, it's not just cognitively knowing facts from Sunday school. It's acknowledging his presence and having affection for his spirit's nearness. It's not really the answer or the fix of the problem. It's just knowing he's here that really empowers the disciples. The second thing is, um, is, is not just going out to the concert and yelling loud and being a fan, but it's to follow and look like him. It's to, it's to look at that picture of Jesus and say, I celebrate and I praise who that is, but I also see that as an invitation to make my life like yours, to form my life spiritually, the way that I eat, sleep, drink, talk, and so forth. But the last thing that he says uh, about what a disciple is, is probably the hardest thing and probably the least done thing, which is not just be with Jesus and be like Jesus, but to do what Jesus would do if he were in the room. The good news and the bad news is, is that when we used to wear those little what would Jesus do bracelets? Uh, we actually, uh, it, it, the sentence kind of falls short. And the good news, bad news is you don't have to be Jesus or you don't have to do what Jesus would do because the job was already taken. Good news is you don't have to go out and buy Birkenstocks or walk around the Middle East or have 12 friends that you hang out with constantly or, you know, multiply fish or whatever. Like that job is already taken. That role is already taken. The call to discipleship is not to do what Jesus did. It's to do what Jesus would do if he were you. That job's already taken. What he wants to know is, can you do what he would do if he was a beautician? What if Jesus was a single mom? What would Jesus do if if he had those resources, those lacks, those problems? How would he use the 
the palette and the color and the canvas of your life to put the glory of God on display? What would Jesus do if he were a middle-class white American? What would Jesus do if he were an Asian American? What would Jesus do if he was a plumber or if he was a teacher or what if he was a med student that worked 80 hours a week? Like, you can't expect for Jesus to call you to give something if you don't have it. He's not asking you to do what you can't do. He's asking you to do what you can do. Is, is to be what he would be if he were you, with your skin and your shoes and your problems and so forth. And so there's an incarnational value here, not just to be with Jesus, like Jesus, but do what Jesus would do if, if, if he were you. And, and, and this premise is brought up in no other stark obviousness than the miracle we're about to read about today, which is the feeding of the 5,000. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 appears in all four of the Gospels. There's only one miracle outside of the resurrection that God wanted to make sure didn't fall out of the pages of his scripture. And that one miracle, there's only one miracle you're going to get other than the fact that the tomb is empty, is that 5,000 people were fed out of bread and fish. Actually, it's the only miracle in the book of Mark that's listed twice. He wants you to know it so bad, he does it twice in case you missed it. He gives you a deja vu. How important is this miracle? It's the most public miracle that, uh, that, that happens um, in, in Galilee. Like, in other words, he's doing small things and telling people to keep it a secret. It's the most creative miracle that he does in all of the Gospels. Think about it this way. Like, it's one thing to, like, fix a Toyota Camry. It's another thing to snap your fingers in a Toyota Camry to appear out of nowhere. He's creating fish that nobody fished for. He's, he's harvesting and feeding bread that nobody had grain for, nobody baked, nobody cooked. He's creating a public miracle for the first time it stands out. But out of all the things about the creativity and the, and the, uh, the, the publicity of this miracle, the thing I think that sets it apart, uh, among all the other things, is how much involvement he has for the disciples in the miracle. In other words, he doesn't just give the miracle to the disciples, he gives the miracle through the disciples. Do you remember in that class when they would have the Civil War coin and the teacher would bring it out and that little ADD kid that couldn't wait to get out of his seat was like, let me touch the coin. He was probably you. You were so excited. You were like, I don't just want to see it. I want to put my hands on it. He's breaking the bread apart, but as soon as he breaks it, there's just more to be broken. And the more bread he breaks, the more there is to be broken. And, and every time you turn around to give the piece of bread to the next person, you turn around, there's more bread. There's something about seeing a miracle and there's something about putting your hands on it to see it happen through you. And so there's an empathy, I think, that takes place not just when you see Jesus and when you walk to emulate him or imitate him, but when you're empowered to do what he were do, to do in, in the room, that you learn things about Jesus you never would have known if you didn't follow him in his shoes. There's something of, of a missionary, if you guys have been a missionary before and gone to another country, there's something about being torn between the value of staying and going. And maybe that's not to another country. Maybe you felt that tension before of what does it mean to say hello to the nations Jesus had to say goodbye to Jerusalem. And there's something about a missionary that it's not until you actually get into the shoes of Jesus, not to cuddle up into the arms of Jesus, but walk a mile in the shoes of Jesus. There's sides of Jesus we just can't know about. To actually look into the eyes of somebody, you ever notice that your friend, you know, they're a mess, and bless them, they're a mess. But you see the pain points. You see that sin really comes from pain. It's, it's, it's a distortion and a distorted view of yourself and others and, and how pain Hurt people hurt people and how pain, but also within that pain is pride. And it's only when it is that, that we are, we are we're loving and caring for the neighbor next to us that we actually see the tornness of Jesus, of both the grace and the truth that lives within the heart of Jesus. You just have to experience it. You can't talk about it. You have to just put your hands on it. You have to put your feet into those shoes. Or to love a person like, like Judas, that person, you know, there's something about 
mental fortitude. There's something about physical fortitude, but emotional fortitude. What is it like to just be rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected and keep reaching for people? There's a side of Jesus you can't know until you meet Judas. There's a side of Jesus that we can't know until we were walk a mile in shoes. And so that's what I think is so astounding about this miracle is the numbers, the positivity, the creativity, and so forth. But it's also the empowerment. It's the involvement of the disciples. When he turns around and he says these stunning and very scary words to the disciples, and I believe he says to this room this morning, he says, you feed them. I want you to feed them. So here's the question I want to ask, and let's think about it as we read through the scripture this morning. Not what would Jesus do if he was a Middle Eastern rabbi. What would Jesus do if he was a father, a mother, a cousin, a brother, a sister? What would Jesus do if he were you? All right, so verse 30-ish. It says down in Mark chapter 6 that the apostles returned to Jesus and told them, told him all that they had done and taught. Could you imagine a dad seeing his little toddler walk for the very first time, and as soon as he sees this, lights and his eyes wake up and he walks out into the living room the dad just go hey little guy watch how fast I can run and just start walking around in circles you know you're so slow bet you can't catch me you know what I mean like could you imagine a father bragging in front of a kid for walking for the first time could you imagine you know uh the dad gets the little daughter with the streamers the pink bike and she rides off into the neighborhood and he claps and passes her off and then he's like I'm gonna go get my Harley Davidson, and he's just like, vroom, 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 and just starts riding down the street. Could you imagine what the daughter's like? Golly, Dad, what are you doing? The amazement of the disciples is, is not just what Jesus is doing. Look what it says. The apostles returned, and the amazement is not just look at how much authority and how much healing he did. It's not what Jesus did, it's actually what they were doing and teaching. That there's sides of Jesus that when you are caring for the sick and, and praying for people when you're hurting. And teaching people when it's hard and when you're telling them things they don't want to hear, there's, there's just a part of Jesus that we're just not going to know just through prayer and worship. Just by being with Jesus, there's a side of it that, that, that walking in his shoes brings about, that just being held in his arms does not bring about. So when he says to them, come away with me. And that's the secret. Come away, he says, by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Rest is not a vacation. Rest is not a tropical shirt. Rest is not a Mojito, I don't even know what these drinks are called, right? Rest is not uh, your favorite island destination. Rest is presence with Jesus. He says to them, you know, if you're going to keep up the pace, if you're not going to burn out, if you're not going to become a hollow hypocrite, if you're going to not be like one of the statistics in ministry where people just burn out and act fake, if you're actually going to be full of it from the inside out, you gotta, you got to learn how to be alone with God. You have to learn how to be alone with God and not lonely. There is no shortcut. There is no way to continue to to pour out, to avoid, as you're being a suffering servant, not becoming a doormat, to be grudging and, and resentful about the people around you if you don't know how to be alone with God. This is a great encouragement uh, for all you couples or, or married people out there. I love Jordan Peterson said, you know, Jordan Peterson says uh, that dates don't have to be expensive. You don't need a tux, you don't need a suit, you don't need a restaurant. You know what you need is some time. And what you need to do, this is what is, that is, that is invaluable and, and imperative for people that are couples, is they need to get time alone. You can't have Fred come into the date every time. You can't just have people coming along. You need to be alone with your spouse, and here's why. It's not about the perfume. It's you have to get to the same story. You can't have two people in the same marriage calling a win a loss and calling a loss a win. You have to have the same narrative. If two narratives exist in a, in a, in a marriage, it's only a matter of time before the thing falls apart. How much more so with God that I need to be alone with God, not because I need to go up to the top of Table Rock. I need, him to, I need him to speak my story to me. I need to get the facts of my life under the truth of his light, 
what do you say about my fears? Those fears are, are, are fact. Those are actual emotions that I'm carrying, but they're not true until you speak to them. And so getting alone with God is not necessarily the most fun thing or the most like, you know, uh, eat whatever you want, do whatever, you know. Like Sabbath, to be fully alone with God is to present yourself and say, I, I don't want to have two stories with us. I want to have one story. What do you say about my dreams? What do you say about my ministry? What do you say about my neighborhood? Like, I need this time away because you can't be intimate if you're always with somebody else. You have to get comfortable with being alone with God. And so they went away to the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So um, uh, now is the time in January where people um, start going on fast, but it's really a diet kind of. You know, they're like, I'm going on a 21-day fast. And uh, really it's like, but, you know, also I'm going to lose some weight and it's going to be great for uh, beach season. And so I, I took that a little bit too far this one time. Uh, we were at a, a little bit more of a charismatic church, and so there's this 21-day fast, and we, so we opened up, and everyone's going to fast. And I was the only one to get the memo, we're just fasting Instagram. So I was like, okay, let's do it. You know, I'm 26, I got nothing to lose. Didn't talk to a doctor, didn't go to WMD, any of that kind of stuff. And I just went on a 21-day juice fast. Didn't do anything except for drinking juice for 21 straight days. And let me tell you, I was a mess. You should have prayed for Kyra, let alone for me on that. I was hangry, lost, confused. I didn't know where I was. And uh, so I went to this, uh, this staff retreat, and that's when I found out everybody's eating Cracker Barrel, you know, and I'm like, what, y'all fasted diet soda? Okay, hang on, let me get it back to neutral, you know. I was like really buying into it, and uh, took off the old, got into the bathing suit, ready to go into the old polar bear plunge with the staff, and one of the staff members said, dude, you look skinny, but not good skinny. Like, you look like Castaway, Tom Hanks, you know, you can see those two little tendons in your and your neck is like bulging out. It's like, you don't look good, dude. Like, you need help. And I was like, I'm just making it. I'm suffering for the Lord, you know. And so, uh, anyways, time goes on. I get to like the day 20. I had fortuitously sat on the like wheel. Some of you youth groupers know what this is. You sit on the wheel of that van and I'm just not feeling good, okay? We're on the last day. I'm a mess. I'm completely hangry and, and, and upset and lucid and just visioning non-spiritual visions. And, uh, and, and, I, and I just have this bargain with God. I'm like, God, I know you want to keep me alive, so I'm going to go into that kitchen even in the middle of this 20 days. I'm going to go get some hummus and a pretzel because your boy is fading fast. Okay? Some of you medical people are probably like, yeah, you were dying. You know what I mean? So I went into the thing, and I just got one little pretzel. That's all it was. I got a pretzel, and I dipped it in some hummus, and I put it in my mouth, and I was ready to feel the invigoration of physical nourishment. And then I realized that I had nary picked up a, a pretzel stick. Actually, what I'd picked up was an oil aroma stick out of the oil thing, and I had coated my entire mouth with uh, vanilla bean or whatever it was. And I was, I just ate all the Big Macs after that. I was done. I was like, I was, hope that was enough for 20 days, you know. Uh, thoughts on fasting, if you guys have ever done that or thought about doing some fasting. Uh, number one, three reasons not to fast. Number one is, is to diet. Like, we should be, you know, clear with our boundaries. Jesus said, you know, you don't want to, Practice Corbin where you're giving something to somebody and saying it's for God and really it's for your own means. Like, that's probably a mince idea. Let's not do that, right? So that's good. Number two, there's actually not a lot of precedent. You'll hear that in certain circles, like we're going to pray and fast for decisions. Let me tell you, the last time I ever want to make an important decision in my life is when I'm hangry. That's not the time that I want to make decisions. I'm drunk with hunger by that time. So don't do that. Don't make decisions. And last one, don't do it as, as like a pecking order. Don't do it to get a black belt. Don't do it to earn favor with God. Do it as an overflow. Because here's the point. 
if you got to know what a car is and got to know what a vehicle is, when you get into that vehicle to know where it's going, know what it's doing, the point of fasting is not to get you closer to God. The point of fasting um, is not to help you make clear decisions. The point of fasting is to teach you weakness. It's to teach you that although I'm a corporate whatever and I make this amount of money and I'm this poised in all these situations, I have this much experience, I'm really one meal away from snapping. That's exactly, that's all it takes. It takes us one breakfast. It takes us one day away from our phone without those serotonin bursts. It takes us one day and we see exactly how thin our strength and our own power is without Jesus. And so what is, what is the real point of fasting? Hunger is a gift because hunger, just like being fatigued or even lonely sometimes, that God will use all of these, these gaps, these lackings in our life. Hunger is a doorway to weakness. Remember when Jesus says the reason why we can't cast out that demon is because this one comes out by prayer and fasting? Because the faster realizes, the faster, the person that fasts realizes that it's at the end of themselves they find the power of God. And they set a geotag in their mind and their spirit. Oh, I'm not as strong as that I think that I am. And God can do even more than I think that he can do. The point of fasting is not all the time what you get put into, but what comes out of it is this emergence of, I am not strong, but God is my source. And so why is, why is fasting important? Because it's a tutor. It doesn't just affect the 40 days. It affects all of our life, not if you fast, but when you fast. Jesus says we should practice fasting, not because it makes us really great and pray for more people. What it does is it teaches us who we're not and who God is. Hunger is a doorway that teaches us weakness, and weakness is the doorway for all of God's power. Here's what must come alive and come clear to you as a disciple when you're about to go out to this desolate place, about to finally get on vacation, and about to finally get a bite to eat for yourself, and Jesus brings 5,000 people along for you to keep your ministry going. Here's what you must realize about Jesus, is that Jesus fed people when he was starving. We think that Jesus did miracles like the God card. He just snapped his fingers, and he just eliminated weakness from his life. Philippians 2 said that's not true. He was just as frail as any of us. And when you see the power of God flow through Jesus, you got to remember it's not because he was so full, he just overflowed. He actually fed people out of his own emptiness sometimes. Jesus fed when he was hungry. He healed when he was, he was hurting. He offered rest to the disciples when he was exhausted because it was not out of his abundance and power. It's actually out of his weakness before the Father that he broke open bread and gave it to all of his disciples as well as the other 5,000 that are sitting there. Hunger is a gift because it teaches us about the true power of God. In our weakness, we learn about the power of God. So they return from mission. They have a little debrief, and then he ruins the very vacation. That's the thing about like rest is like, it's not the thing about working overtime. It's when you actually think you're ready to go to sleep that your kid wakes you up and you're like, you know, you lose it because you assume that you're going to sleep and you're not. So he ruins this vacation when he allows all these people to come to him. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran on ahead of them on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. There's a four mile trip on the lake and an eight mile circle and they ran faster in eight miles of what they could row across the Sea of Galilee in four miles. And they always get ahead of him. That's the nature of the crowds. When you follow Jesus, you get the crowds. I remember a pastor one time was talking about intimacy and marriage and sex. And he said, you know, this one time this really convicting thing happened. Where his wife said, you know, when you, when you touch me, it feels like taking. When, it, when you touch me, it feels like you're expecting something. You're, doing, you're touching me, but it's not like you're touching me. This is a big theme in Mark that, ironically, the very thing that heals people, the touch of Jesus... There's people that are touching Jesus all the time, but they're not touching Jesus. 
They're taking from him. They're want, they're, they were grabbing from him. They're pressing from him. They're actually trying to kill him. And this is the same crowd that touches Jesus. It's the same t- crowd that touches them. And so those in the room that feel like the bills keep coming and there's not enough, and it seems like as soon as you serve one person, another person comes, and the, the gnawing voice that you're not enough and you're not doing enough, this is the same thing. It's as far as they go across the Sea of Galilee, there's always crowds ahead of them. There's always more people that are needing things. There's always more, more stuff to be done even when they're tired. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and instead of contempt to send them away, he has compassion, because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus is so kind, and he says so many kind things to us, and he he speaks life over us, but this is not a compliment to us. He's calling us uh, sheep, not because sheep are so superior or awesome. He's calling them sheep because we're dumb. Even the Harvard professors out there, you know sheep, when they get on their back, they're like, you, know, you ever see a sheep? Just, they just die. They just lay on their back until they die. Can't get up. I just fell asleep, took a nap, and nobody was around to help me up, and now I don't have an Apple Watch. Now I'm gone. You know, that's it. Like, that's the end of it. Like, how did, reason for death, you know? Uh, they, they can't rest. They can have a whole pasture. They can have a vacation, a beautiful life, a beautiful family, but they have lies in their head. Little nits and flies that get into their eyes and get into their ears, and if, if the shepherd can't put oil on their eyes and their ears. They could have rest all around them, but they can't have rest in their soul. You know how dumb sheep are? They can pair each other for who's the cooler sheep. You have last year's sheep Nike 2000s or whatever, you idiot. You know, like they compare each other. There's ducks and there's, there's bison and there's all these animals and sheep are the same thing. They have a pecking order and some people's sheep are sheepier than other sheep. And so they blame other sheep for how come they're not sheepier than them. And they kick the other sheep out, and then it means their death. They literally peck them until they leave the fold and die. That's how dumb sheep are. And Jesus says, the reason why we struggle, the reason why we can't rest, the reason why we need nourishment is because we don't need a strategy. We need a shepherd. We don't, we don't need a, 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 a tip, you know, on, on Sunday mornings. We need the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us, to be a counselor for our next step. The map wouldn't do us any good because we're so directionally challenged. We need a guide to speak to us. We need, um, we need a, a shepherd to come, and, and I'm doing my best up here, and I have my Google notes, but Jesus has got to speak to you. He's got to, he's got to get the, the lies out of your ears, the lies out of your eyes. You're, it's not a strategy problem. It's a shepherd problem. He's the one that guides, that, that cares. He knows your name, and, and, and he lays his life down for a sheep. So when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside villages and buy themselves Something to eat. And here's what all of us introverts, myself included, hate to hear when we're hungry, lonely, and tired. I just thought I was about to get on a vacation, and Jesus says to me, you need to get up and give them something to eat. Remember that? Uh, in the early 2000s, they would write books about energy vampires. This is what you need to do when you have energy vampires. Have good boundaries and tell people no and stick to your no and stick to your guns and so forth. Jesus looked at his hunger, realized it actually wasn't a burden. It was an opportunity and believe that the other side of that hunger is the best meal that he's ever going to serve. He looked at his lack and his hurting, and he said, you know what? What if this week, the encouragement that you wish that somebody would come and check on you, wish that somebody would come and speak life into you, you wish that somebody would come and speak truth to you, what if he's actually calling you this week to give what you don't have? That's the assumption is that discipleship is all about being full to overflow, but sometimes it's about trusting God to give out of you what you don't even have in your own hand. That there's somebody richer than you and you wish that somebody would come and help you out of your financial problem, what if you were called to recognize there's somebody actually poorer than you and pressed and stirred and crushed 
You receive as you give. What if the best meal you're ever going to taste is going to happen after you feed when you're hungry? What if it's actually in the meal that he prepares for the people that you're going to serve? Sometimes, sometimes he asks us to give what he has. Sometimes he asks us to give what we don't have or give what we wish that we had. So in every marriage, in every organization, in every team, there's always, you know, there's always a gas and a break. There's always a green light and a red light. There's always an action person and an analyzed person. And so the disciple comes out of nowhere as the kind of bean counter. You know these people. When everybody's like, this is awesome. And then some engineer's like, we can't do that. That breaks all the rules, you know. And the party's just like, you know, you people, right? And me. There's always that person. And they said to him, you know, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? You know, he's got to be the red light. But we need these people. This is important, and this is a part of the process, right? Because I think if you don't understand what you can't do, you don't ever give credit for what God did do. There's a, there's a permanent threshold that's marked in our mind. Let it be noted in the meeting notes here in verse 48 or whatever this is, that the disciples noted that for 5,000 people we had two pieces of bread and five fish, and that just isn't enough, right? That's not enough. We need math people because math people bring us back to the earth, bring us back to reality, and tell us the difference between a dream and a miracle, Right? And so he says to them, how many loaves and fish do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five fish and two loaves. I'm not going to tell you which one me and Kyra are, uh, which one's the fast and which one's the slow, which one's the why and which one's the why not. We all need these people. People need gas and brakes and red lights and green lights. It's part of the process for seeing a miracle happen, for miracle math to happen. Uh, in the prayer journals uh, at the very beginning, you'll notice um, all good prayer journals, they always start with gratitude. Did you ever notice that? The first ones, they always start, start with your gratitude. Gratitude can't occupy the same thought as anxiety. Displace the, the anxiety with gratitude. Don't not think about fear. Think about gratitude. Gratitude is the weapon against fear. Gratitude is a weapon. That's the thing that you want to start your day with. So gratitude is a great thing. But also notice that Jesus is, is, is not just counting what the disciples have. He's also counting what they don't have. That it's important to, to before the miracle happens, to recognize miracles are by definition something that's impossible. It's to recognize what you have, but also what you don't have that allows the miracle, miracle math to work. And so there's a fine line between gratitude and complacency. There's something that happens when Jesus says to you and me, you go feed them, that puts ownership on me. That he says to go and make disciples of all, of your, all the nations, which means your neighborhood, which means your cubicle, and you are forced to come into the place of impossibility because in that hunger, in that gap, is the place that Jesus is about to work. In other words, it's, it's, it's a great thing to think about what you do have, but it's also an important thing to recognize what you don't have, to recognize your lack, because it's in that spot, in that important place, to recognize what God has called you to, and therefore what you can't do without him, that you actually recognize what is in your hand and what you can do about it. In other words, I guess the business people say, start a business like you have all the money in the world, and then realize that you don't, and go from there. That's where the revelation and the vision would, would come from. And so this is the idea, I think, is the question I think that Jesus would ask all of us. Yes, we don't have everything, but we do have something. And all of us want to give the last $10 to the GoFundMe if we know that our money would matter, but what if you just had to give it and not know what the result was going to be? What if you had to just give everything that you had and still realize it's not enough, but know that none of it is wasted? What if you were called to just give what you have? I mean, if you really think about this, like, not all of us have time to go around and knock on all the doors and share the gospel with all the people. Not all of us have time or, or the biblical insight to preach about apologetics or tell that really smart professor that's in your school. You don't have that. And God is not expecting you to do what you can't do or give what you don't have. But he is expecting you to give what you do have. He is expecting you to give 
the two fish and the five loaves or whatever it is that you have, he is asking you to be accountable because it's not, it's not giving something that you don't have. It is giving what you do have so that Jesus can do what you can't do. I think that is the miracle math that comes to mind in this story, above all other things for what the disciples are learning on this hill with us, is that miracle math is about doing what you can do. Not doing what you can't do, but it is doing what you can do so that Jesus can do what you can. You do have an hour to pray for your neighborhood. Even if it's 10 minutes, you have an hour to pray for your spouse. Oftentimes, we like to think about the grass greener in some other pasture because it gives us permission and blame to think about all the things we don't have because we don't have to be accountable for what we do have. Some of you guys are struggling with deconstruction and, and, and doubt and all these things. I don't know if we believe in organized church. I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in that. Well, do you believe that Jesus walked? You're responsible for that. And it's passivity and apathy and all of the complaint and projection of blaming all the other things on the world, why somebody else and somebody should do something else about that. But all of that is projection from, and a distraction from the real question, which is what do you have? You do have some faith. And you, we've, we are accountable to use it. You do have some amount of money. You are accountable to use it. You do have some mental health. We are accountable to use that thing. I think that the question of empowerment there is so powerful because it holds us all accountable. Whatever it is that you have to give to Jesus, and he uses it, and he makes enough of it. That's the Jesus math. All right, so closing up. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on green grass. Did you notice what the disciples said about the landscape around them all the time? You remember what the disciples kept saying about where they were in Galilee? It's just so desolate. It's desolate. We better send them away. It's just desolate. Do you know what Jesus helps us discover about the real Judean countryside? It's the most green, grazy pasture you've ever seen. It's green. Look, he says he commanded them all to sit down in groups on green grass. So they sat down in groups by the hundreds and the fifties, like Abraham's promise. And reminds them, like, we thought it was desolate because it didn't have man's plans and man's structures and clarity for us. But just because we don't see the fruit in the kingdom of God doesn't mean that the kingdom of God isn't living all around us. And the greenest place we'll ever be as sheep is at the feet of Jesus. Like, like if we were to get even a glimpse of who God created us to be as a beautician, as a divorced person, as a person that struggles, if we could even get a glimpse of who Jesus created us to be, there wouldn't be any looking at any other grass. In other words, if we had a picture of who Jesus created us to be, we wouldn't want to be anybody else. Then to be with Jesus, like Jesus, doing what Jesus would do, that's the green grass. There's no greener grass. And it's only our blindness and only our impotence and ignorance to, to, to not see. Like we're always looking at the other grass, but the grass in front of us is the one we're called to steward, and that is where the kingdom of heaven lives. It's not in some other rabbi. It's wherever your feet are planted, That is where the kingdom of God extends through you. And that's the invitation to know who Jesus is by walking in his shoes, not just joining in his arms. So taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. And he does what every gift you ever give to your, you give your kids, you give your money, your finances. This is what he always does. Remember what he does on the cross? He says, forgive them. Like I could choose to see them as rebels. I could choose to see them as outlaws, as as venomous, vile betrayers. He says, I forgive them. I bless them. And then he exhaled his last breath and he just allowed his body to be broken. That's what he does with every gift. There is no ounce wasted of the bread, any bread that you give to Jesus that he breaks and give to other people. It's never wasted. You know, my first, uh, I was a youth pastor. My first youth group was one atheist kid. God just thought it was funny to uh, have me go out after I was teaching high school. The kids that enlisted me is just talk to a kid about Jesus that didn't listen to me. And uh, single mom drove the kid to youth group every time. Came in an atheist, left an atheist. 
At the end of the day, how many baskets are there? There's 12 baskets. None of this is wasted. All of it is about, it's about not missing lunch, but it's also about not missing the, the, the shepherd. To be close to the one, to know that the greenest grass is the one that Jesus rests in. That he breaks and he blesses our lives. Anything we give to him as mentors, the hours that we give to people that don't listen to us, the hours that we give to our kids, the hours that we, that we just believe for Jesus to bring the not enough for the GoFundMe that doesn't really move the needle, none of that's wasted. All that's required and all that's asked is to bring what you have that God might do through you what you can't do on your own. And this is how the kingdom of heaven he's teaching us in this miracle rolls out, even in 2024. Lastly, he divided the two fish among them. Oh, no, yeah, he divided the two fish among them and they ate and they were satisfied. I mean, this is what John the Baptist, when he got beheaded, this is what Herod is not enjoying. He's not enjoying a lunch like this. This is the best lunch anyone's ever tasted. It's the lunch that nobody worked for. It's the lunch that had grain that nobody sowed. It's the lunch that had fish that appeared out of nowhere. It's the provision of the pastor. It's the provision of that shepherd that fills up these 12 baskets. Not a crumb was missing. He collected it all. And it was, it was in the feeding of the 5,000 that the disciples got their meal. In other words, if, if they did not walk in the shoes of Jesus, they wouldn't have gotten fed the way that they did. Full of broken pieces and fish, and those who ate loaves were about 5,000 men. So I'll close uh, just with this question. Maybe it will bring uh, a smile to your, to your heart this morning. But can you think of um, maybe the, the best meal you've ever had? I can think one time when I was... Uh, 18, and uh, my dad took me to Chicago and, and got us a nice steak, a ribeye, you know. It's probably like $100. And I always remember that was a pretty good one. Or uh, I can remember, uh, I can remember wedding dinner. Actually, I didn't eat a lot because I was like running around talking to people, and I had to eat it like leftover, and then we put the cake in the, in the freezer. What about you? Like, what's the, what's the best meal, you know? What, what's, what makes the great meal? Is, is it the chef in the restaurant? Is it the the people that are sitting beside you, maybe it's the clinking glasses of a, of a season that you work through and, and you see the valley turn into a mountain. Like, what is it that makes a great meal? Uh, this last uh, Thursday, Kyra made me a carrot cake. That was one of my, that's probably my favorite meal, I would say. Uh, she made me a carrot cake and we've been married for 20 years. So she knows exactly my favorite cake. And that's the thing about being 40 is uh, you got to shake it up sometimes because you get really in your rut and you start doing all the things that you like to do and you start to become a grumpy old man. But anyways, I like my carrot cake and it's staying. I got to play a 1947 World War II uh, Martin guitar. Small little, uh, like the one that uh, Brian Johnson plays on, on Bethel sometimes, but it's a small little guitar in this Hendersonville shop. I didn't buy it, but I just didn't break it. That was the goal. Let me just play it. I'm not going to break it. Keep the bank. Don't break the guitar. Good to go. Leo played it. And there's just like a, a really fun moment. Um, of, that, of that guitar. And then Rose. I've been kind of like checking out on Starbucks, I'll be honest. I'm a Bridge City guy now, you know, I'm fancy. Ayo. No, I love, I mean, Starbucks is good. I just, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Too much shaking, too much foam. I don't know what's going on. I, I just pull Rose up to the passenger. I'm just like, speak to the passenger. Let her do the business. Because they talk to each other. She works at Chick-fil-A, so there's an authority and respect there. They're like, we know what's going on here. We get, we get right, to the, right to the bottom of it. She got me the best Starbucks drink. I'm telling you, it's not where, but who you know. You got to know somebody that's going to get you your order right. It was a shaken oat milk espresso. I was gluten-free, and I mean, I was so cool. Probably where my feet are so big, you know? But it was an awesome uh, Starbucks. But, but, you know, maybe you make this, is it the who? Is it where? Is it what you're eating? The best meals that we'll ever have are the ones that Jesus feeds us. It's the one where he knows the, the number of hairs on your head. He knows your sins and your weaknesses. He knows what you have and what you don't have. And in your lack and in your openness and in what real faith is, which is not taking and grabbing, which is just surrendering and letting go, 
that he meets you in that pasture and gives you grass you've never even been seen yet any greener. That he fills up your baskets one by one, exactly the right baskets. There's no other place you'd rather be than with the shepherd in the field with Jesus. The best meals. And so, what do we miss? There's like, there's no like iPhone Pro, iPhone S. Like, there's no mid-range. Discipleship is lit with and like and for Jesus. To follow Jesus and not do what he would do in the room, there's no like beta package. If you want Jesus, if we want Jesus, if we want to know the heart of Jesus, there's just certain parts of his, of his, of his heart that we won't know unless we walk in his shoes, unless we care for the ones he cares for, unless we feed the ones he feeds, unless we pray for the ones, unless we pray while we're sick and hurt and, 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 and heal while we're hurting and, and, and feed people while we're hungry, like, Unless we test the boundaries of that hunger, we'll never know the power of God. And that is the invitation. We see it as counting beans in a math problem that can't be solved. Jesus is an invitation to knowing not just the, the best lunch ever known, but the best Savior. If we don't walk in his shoes, we miss the lunch and we miss the Savior. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, hey, my, my, my bread is not Panera. It is to do the will of the Father. The best meals we'll ever taste is the ones that come from obedience. The best meals we take are the ones that are just... Um, walking in the shoes of the rabbi in front of us. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.